0: Central National Bank, member FDIC. Coming up on the podcast, I had a a guest lined up for today and the guest bailed. And so, of course, I just didn't want to come in because I didn't have a game plan. And Mike at Rogue Media challenged me to tell my story as far as sports is concerned to bring context to this podcast. So if you want to put something on while you take a nap, stick around. I think you got about an hour's worth. Uh, but it's basically my story in sports. I, I left a lot of stuff out. I feel like I put more in that was uninteresting. Um, and I left out a lot of interesting stuff. But Mike says, no, he says it was great. And there are a lot of cool stories. And I think some of the, uh, what I did learn is, you know, throughout my sports career, I talk about working in PR for the the Hornets or the Bobcats, uh, the Sixers, and working at USA Basketball and having the opportunity to do radio in the NBA and all this stuff. Uh, it's just, that's the reason why you're listening to this podcast because that's the reason I care about sports history. So take a listen, get acclimated, and, uh, or, or have a good nap. So the idea behind this podcast is to add some context to my career from a sports perspective, and i tell you exactly why I ended up getting into into broadcast and into the sports arena and as to why I'm so passionate about it. And recently, I think I've rediscovered that passion. It starts with, I was very fortunate. When I was a kid, I had two older brothers that played a lot of sports, and I, I think I wanted to be a part of, so I've constantly followed them around. They both played high school football, pretty good players, uh, and it was very exciting to me to be to be around the team. I remember my brother Kevin played for Archbishop Carroll, and I mean, I had pictures of his football team all over my my room. Like, I would cut stuff out from their program, and I would go to their games, and, you, you know, it was one of those situations as a kid, there were probably 800 to 1,000 people there, and it felt like there were 100,000. And I, I also, at the same time, developed a total love for for sports on television, and that's kind of what, what this podcast has a lot to do with. I can remember as a little kid, you know, uh, there's another podcast I have called The Payoff, and it's about sobriety. And one of my first uh, experiences with a mind-altering substance was when I got downstairs and realized that I could have Rice Krispies with all the sugar I wanted while my parents slept in the morning, and I could watch NFL films at the same time. And it was like a mind-blowing experience that moved into going to church coming home on the way home from church we would get a dozen dunkin donuts and uh i would sit in front of the tv and watch the nfl today which is we ripped off their theme song for this podcast and so i would watch the nfl today hopefully nfl today so whoever wrote that we thank you very much and <laughs> credit to you uh but i used to sit there with 12 12 donuts, and I wouldn't eat them all, but I'd have like two or three or four, maybe as a young kid. And I'd have all the football spreads in front of me, and I'd be watching from the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I'd be watching Jimmy the Greek uh, handicap football games with Brent Musburger and, and Irv Cross. And it was just amazing to me. It was the most mind blowing experience in the world. And, you know, if, if you fast forward to high school, I, I wasn't like, you know, of course I enjoyed. Uh, And very much sought after the presence of females. But sports was really my first love because that was actually probably more attainable for me. And I could watch, I watched sports all the time. My mom was a conduit to my, uh, facilitated really my career in sports. My mom gets not enough credit for all she did for me, but especially in the arena of life, right? But then with sports was kind of a a sidecar to that in a sense where my mom worked at Villanova University and she worked for the athletic director in the 80s, right when Villanova won the NCAA championship, the basketball championship. And we had access. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had access to things that no other kids had access to. I, I was literally hanging out right by the office of, of the Raleigh Massimino, the head basketball coach. Now, Raleigh really, I mean, he, he knew me because he knew I was Terry's kid, but I would be around that all the time. I would play hide-and-go-seek while Villanova was playing basketball, I mean, I was practicing, you know, um, at the uh, DuPont Pavilion or the Jake Nevin. And I can remember Raleigh Massimino like yelling at us up in the stands to get out of there and then cracking a joke. But I-, I had access to all this stuff. And a huge relationship was my mom had a really good friend at Villanova, a guy named Craig Miller. And Craig was the sports information director at Villanova. And Craig was... One of the coolest guys to this day I've ever met, but one of the most hardworking, uh, just real non-judgmental, I get it type of dudes. And he was also just a sports nut and he played football at Albion University in Michigan. And then he ended up being, this is before social media and before all the, the short content videos, which work and they're cool. but before all that like the creative side and the marketing side of college sports and pro sports was really like sports information directors the guys who would be the conduits or girls who would be the conduits between major pro sports teams uh, or colleges and they would be a, a liaison between the media and the front office and the staff and the players or the administration the staff and the players and craig was that he was a sports information director of Villanova so he disseminated all the critical information to media. He oversaw media access and interviews. And at the time, it was a job that was really starting to take shape and take off because there was so much evolution going on around pro sports, sports on television, the coverage, sports writers. And Craig was my man. And Craig, I mean, my, my mom and dad would go out of town. I remember I, I, I would crash. Craig, his house, he was like a young single dude. He's married now, has incredible kids. But Craig would... He lived right behind my mom's house, or excuse me, right behind my grade school. And uh, he actually, Jay Wright was actually one of his roommates, the guy who coached at Villanova. And I would crash at that house uh, when my mom was away, and I just walked to school in the morning. And that relationship really just got me on the on the track. I think it afforded me access that I otherwise wouldn't have had. And it, man, I felt incredible about 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 sports and and uh, you know the, the possibility to work in it was, didn't seem that far off, right? Because I had been able to kind of reach out and touch it. And I'm sure there's a lot of stuff I also sold programs of vulnerable football games for Craig. Um, one of my first like alcoholic moves is I somehow ended up with $30 in my pocket when I came home, uh, $30 that was not mine. and <laughs> I had to return it. My mom was like, you got to bring that back. I was like, all right. Um, I was a little kid. I was, you know, it was a cash business. Uh, but I brought it back over there. And, uh, and yeah, it was just an incredible experience uh, being around around that. Now, my own career kind of started to evolve because I was a big guy, so I ended up playing football uh, in, in high school. I was a, a football player, and I was a basketball player first, but I wasn't good enough. And our, our team at Archbishop Carroll, we got a new coach named Tom Inglesby, and we, we recruited all these incredible players from outside of – our footprint, you know, like Radnor Township in the city of Philadelphia, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, I wasn't good enough to compete with these guys. So I ended up going right to the weight room and and, and lifting and playing football. I mean, we literally, I went to go shoot around and play um, with the basketball team uh, going into my junior year where I thought I might have a chance to start. And uh, we had recruited this seven-foot dude from Poland. We had another like six, seven athlete that came in. Um, the Polish guy played at Villanova, the other athletic guy we're talking about Rafael Bigas and Paul Romanchuk. Paul played at, at Penn, Martin Inglesby played at Notre Dame. All these guys were great players. And you know, I, I was going to end up being a bench warmer, which I still played and I was a bench warmer, but that's when I knew that football was going to be, you know, the sport that I, uh, that I played. So fast forward, I go to play football and, uh, I I lift weights and I guess I get good and I ended up getting a scholarship and I'll spare all the details, but I go to the university of Richmond and, uh, I'm on scholarship. Uh, If you want to hear more about this story, you can again listen to the payoff with Pete. We get into my story. Um, this story today really isn't about drugs and alcohol, but I had a heart problem that I developed quite possibly doing a lot of drugs and, and, uh, drinking a, a lot. So I was, I couldn't play football in college, but I was kept on scholarship. So I was always around, always around uh, the game. All right, so Mike just helped me take a break there. Uh, And now we're back to the action. I feel weird about this, by the way, because I'm sitting here talking about myself. Um, But Mike just said it's something I had to do. So, uh, we're trying to trying to bring a little background to this whole deal. So I get into college and coach Jim Reed kept me on scholarship at the university of Richmond where he could have let me go. Uh, he recruited me, you know, I was a senior in high school and I came home one day, a buddy, a a buddy and I were smoking pot after, uh, our football season was over. It was like January, maybe, maybe it was like December. And, uh, People, I was starting to get recruited by college football teams. I wanted to play Division One so badly, and uh, you know, I wasn't quick enough. I, I ended up playing Division One or getting recruited to Division One, but I wanted to, you know, go to a huge school. I wanted to go to Michigan or Ohio State. I remember I wanted to go, to go to Air Force. I we had just finished up a game, and this guy who was a great coach, John McGuire, but it was one of those moments. He he just shot the straight truth at me, and it broke my heart. I was like, hey, you know, he's like our oh, coach was from Air Force was here today. Like, he was here to see you. He he liked you. And I was like, oh, really? I was like, do you think I could play at Air Force? And he looked at me and goes, no, nah, not good enough. And I remember that, like, just crushed me. Uh, and it was one of those things. I was thinking about that a couple of days ago. Like, I was like, man, that's like, it's crazy, the stuff you you can say to people, how it can be soul crushing. So I remember that. And I finished up my senior season. I wasn't, in my mind, I, I wasn't as good as uh, people I thought I was going to be. Um, I think, or I thought I was going to be, I was kind of a bust this is a high school senior. Um, and, uh, I ended up getting a scholarship to the university of Richmond. The story I was telling is I came home, a buddy of mine, we were, we were smoking pot and, and, uh, we showed up and there was a guy in my parents' driveway and he was like, Peter, I'm Joe Cullen. I'm with the university of Richmond. I want to offer you a full scholarship. And I was like, Oh, wow. I and my buddy was Drew was in the driveway. He's like, "Dude, did you just offer you a full scholarship?" I was like, "Yeah, I think so." And it was like kind of mind blowing that hadn't happened to me. And then I started to get offers from other schools, a lot of other like Division 1 AA schools like James Madison, Boston University, Villanova. Um the schools like that and uh, which was an honor. Um but I ended up going to the University of Richmond and uh p- to play for coach Jim Reed. Coach Cullen was one of his assistants. And it was the best move I ever made and uh you should have known. I should have known there was a problem with alcohol. But my on my visit, I we everybody woke up to go downstairs and meet with like the coaches, and and everybody's parents were there for the official visit. Most, most people's were, and I slept through it. Like they, they couldn't wake me up. Coach Cohen had to come to the hotel door and was banging on the door, banging on the door, and uh, yeah, they couldn't even wake me up. So that was pretty much a microcosm of what what my college. Uh, experience was going to be like off the field because there was always off the field because I didn't play luckily because of the way that coach Reed was. And and he was a kind of a caretaker where he kept us all in line. And uh, if you weren't going to do well in class, were you going to go to study hall? So, I mean, literally if I was getting like a a C or a D, I I would spend my spring days where where there wasn't spring football because I was constantly working around the team um, you know, they were trying to make me earn my scholarship. I would just sit in, in the study hall and stare at Coach Reed. So you, you were going to pass or you were going to transfer. You weren't going to flunk out. And uh, I, I didn't flunk out. I graduated. And luckily, because of relationships I made when I was in college, one of my best buddies was Todd McShay. And Todd now works at ESPN. He's an incredible draft analyst. And Todd called me one day. He's like, hey, you want to work for this company called The War Room? And uh, Todd knew. He saw it in me, how much I love sports. And, uh, you know, I was a pretty good writer, and I was an order. And he gave me an opportunity working for this guy, Gary Horton. And I moved up to New York. I lived with Todd, worked for Gary, uh, another really good guy who's who's wildly successful now, Jim Nagy. He runs the senior bowl. And I was able to work with these guys. And I don't talk about this much because it almost doesn't seem real. It was a wild ride. I, I got up there, and... We were really, I mean, I was rubbing elbows with some big-time people. The office was on the corner of 51st and 7th um, in New York City, and we were on, I think, like the 37th floor, and we were housed in the SFX football uh, offices. And Gary Horton kind of like had a workaround where Gary was on the payroll for SFX Sports because Gary was a former football coach and a former, he was an incredible recruiter. Um, and he also had worked for an agent at at ProServe. And uh, Gary ran the War Room out of the SFX football offices. Now, a lot of people that are football fans are familiar with the War Room. That was basically they would handicap the draft. We would handicap the drafts. We would give preview matches for NFL and college games that year uh, coming up that week. And Gary and Todd had kind of given me some work to do to see if I was capable of joining the team. And they thought I was. So I move up there. I'm working for these guys. Like I said, Gary has the workaround. So I'm going to work making a 1000 bucks a month, which at the time for me was incredible. Todd and I lived on Gary Horton's floor. We slept on his floor in Midtown. We woke up and went to work every day. We worked really hard and really long hours. And it it was incredible. I was living in New York City. Then another component started to come in where the guys at SFX were like, they kind of leaned on us to help recruit uh, football players that they were going to represent. So now we're writing for the sporting news because the sporting news, the war room wrote some stuff for the sporting news. Um, and we also did matchups at the sporting news governed. They oversaw, they had a contract the war room did with the sporting news. Mike, is this making sense? We are, we're working in, in New York, uh, the, the, that that life is kind of really cool i didn't have like a major problem with alcohol or drugs yet or 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 i think i probably did that's not true but i was reinvigorated when i got to new york and i really did for a little while this 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 passion was was this job and all of a sudden what started to come in is i mentioned we were housed in that that sports agency's office sfx sports which was the marquee group before and then it became sfx sports i mean we're talking about huge, huge, um, you know, you know, talent they're representing. It was athletes and artists. I think it was before when it was the marquee group and we're talking about, you know, Mike and Mike were represented by this guy, Lou Oppenheim down the hall. David Falk is down the hall when he's in town and not in DC. And, you know, he represents Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing, uh, news personalities, major, major personalities. And I'm sitting there like a total slapdick a little bit out of college writing about football, because the guy I work for ultimately found a way to run his other business out of this, um, out of this building. And Gary was brilliant. Uh, he's extremely is extremely talented and extremely bright. And Gary could you could sit Gary in the living room of an underprivileged kid in the middle of Florida, and he could get him to go to pretty much any school anywhere. And Gary's talent to do that, uh, was used to recruit players that would be represented by SFX, by SFX football. And what Gary would do, and one of his claim, to fa- his claim to fame really was, he would train guys for the NFL draft in a sense where, as if you saw Gary, he's not like this Adonis per se, but he had knowledge of all the drills that they did. You know, the 40-yard dash. There was all kinds of other drills, and honestly, I'm not as well-versed on it as I used to be. Um, but all the drills they ran at the combine before the combine was this thing on the NFL network. It was, you know, it was at the Hoosier dome or the RCA dome and, you know, it was all scouts and NFL personnel. Well, Gary knew how to massage those drills in those times. So he would take players that were represented by SFX and he would get them down somewhere and out in Phoenix or in Florida. And he would teach them the ins and outs of, you know, beating the clock. You know, Mike Mamula wasn't one of their uh, players per se, but we saw what Mike Mamula did um, for the Philadelphia Eagles. He was a monster at the combine, and he ended up making millions upon millions of dollars based on his draft workout. Well, Kevin Hardy was a guy that was represented by ProServe, a company that Gary was working for at the time in Phoenix, and Gary basically took Kevin Hardy from being like a second-round pick, a linebacker from – Illinois. And I think Kevin Hardy was the second pick in the draft because Gary got him primed to do this incredible workout. So Gary was a hot commodity. He ended up with SFX sports. This is a long way uh, of saying that I had the opportunity to recruit players for SFX. So at the time, Peter Warwick was a big player. Uh, You know, we recruited him to be represented by SFX sports. And uh, Travis Taylor was another guy. Uh, he came to town. Um, other Chad Pennington, we tried to get him. I was meeting all these guys, and they would come to New York. Giovanni Carmazzi was a guy. He came to town. Uh, we would go all over New York City with these guys, and we went to the Super Bowl. Uh, we're taking around these players. It was just like a lot. I met Puff Daddy in, in one night in New York, like like a, like a meeting where they wanted to introduce Peter Warwick to Puff Daddy, and I somehow ended up going in the car. Um, with Peter work, uh, it was nuts. Uh, and so anyways, it was way too much for me to handle. I, I totally flamed out Todd and I lived in a place together in New York. Todd was like really focused and driven. I was not, I was too involved with party and whatever. So that, I mean, I basically worked myself out of that job, um, or didn't work myself out of that job. And, uh, I was sick. Uh, I really was. And again, you can listen to the payoff, uh, to get all the information about that, that whole flame out situation. But I wasn't ready. I went home. I kind of got my act together. Uh, Craig Miller comes back into play. He extends me, throws me a life preserver basically, because I'm, I'm not drinking at the time, but, but I'm not really working any kind of program. And uh, Craig said, Hey, you should come to work for me and live with my family in Colorado Springs and uh, work for USA Basketball. At, now, Craig had gone on from Villanova to work public relations for USA Basketball. He oversaw Craig and guys from the NBA and other guys from USA Basketball, but the Dream Team, I mean, he was the liaison, right, between Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Carl uh, Malone, uh, John Stockton, and Larry Bird, and the media. And this was an amazing thing that Craig was a part of And, you know, Craig was like a part of my family. And he gave me the opportunity in 2003 and four to work for USA Basketball. I went out there, reinvigorated Craig, another guy, Sean Ford. They took good care of me and Jim Tooley. And I was able to go out there and get some exposure to some things um, that I hadn't been exposed to before as far as I was able to help players get media exposure in a positive way. I've always thought, and this is like the true mission behind like sports information to me, at least. These are, everybody's got a story. You know, we had Jeff Perlman on this podcast and the thing that Jeff Perlman did such an incredible job of is he talks about Bo Jackson's life and the the incredible struggle he had growing up in Bessemer, Alabama. Here's a young kid who grows up. His father, his real father, right, uh, is living on the other side of town, married to a, to a woman who's not Bo's mom and he's living out this whole other life. And here's Bo growing up across town with his mom, um, and like 10 brothers and sisters. And, you know, he's got no money. He's in a house with no heat and he's sleeping with like three kids in a bed and he's, his real dad's across town with another family, just kicking it. And like, everybody's got their own story, but it's amazing how these athletes get thrust into this incredible, onto this huge stage And people are like, geez, I can't believe that guy didn't know how to handle that situation. It's like, are you kidding me? You know, uh, uh, yeah, sure. The guy hit the shot at the buzzer to win the game. But if you're talking to him right as he walks off the court and he's accosted by, uh, you know, a sideline reporter to talk to the media, like maybe the guy might not say the right thing, especially after he loses. And all of a sudden that moment defines a guy's life. So I always thought that was kind of BS and to have the opportunity to do that. Um, was, like, huge for me. I traveled with the USA women's national team, like the junior women's national team, which was, like, college players uh, at the time were players that were going to be in, in in college. Candace Parker was on that team, and we traveled all over, went to all over the USA. Not all over, but we went to Miami. We went to Denver. Um, and then we went to someplace else down south, and then we went over to Puerto Rico, like Mayaguez, which was, like, you know. They had a casino inside the hotel, which was cool. Um, And I had just started to drink again, so that was a lot of fun. But uh, I was over there, and it was awesome. I was the media contact for this team. And this team, people were interested in it because of Candace Parker, because of Kansas Wiggins. Marissa Coleman was on that team. They were just incredible players. Uh, Sharday Houston, it was a blast. It was a blast. I loved it. And I came back, and I said to Craig, how do I get a job? I want to work in the NBA because I was, I was an intern. I was an intern. I was a paid intern for USA basketball. And he said, this is 2004, write a cover letter um, and we'll get your resume together and send it to every NBA team. So that's what I did. I wrote a cover letter. I I, uh, put my resume together. I sent it to every NBA team and I got an interview with the Miami Heat I, I I was just talking about this today with John Tobias. Um, he asked me, I, I got an interview with the Miami Heat, and I got another interview with with somebody else. I forget. The Miami Heat, I think, really wanted to give me the job, but there were circumstances that prevented that from happening, and I was so bummed. But the Charlotte Bobcats, this new team um, that had just, the Charlotte Hornets left Charlotte, so the Bobcats were the team that was brought in to replace the Hornets because the NBA really wanted a team To be in charlotte because it was basketball country and uh bob johnson the guy who won bet bought the uh charlotte bobcats and there was a guy who was supposed to work for him and right before the season he bailed so they were like needed a pr guy and fast and i got hired scott lightman hired me i I flew to charlotte interviewed with scott lightman and um the great bj evans um, who by the way i talked about craig miller i'll get to bj in a second so I ended up taking the job in Charlotte, and uh, it was a it was an amazing experience. I, I I literally went from living in Colorado Springs, working for USA Basketball, and now all of a sudden I'm in Charlotte, um, working for an NBA team. And again, you're not getting paid a king's ransom, but you are get, you're getting paid in experience and uh, education. And it was the most incredible experience. And we see it now today because there's so much more coverage, and you see. The, the PR people. Uh, the, and and now it's uh, there's creative services people involved. The creative services people are more on the side of the website and social media. Um, and again, if somebody were like, hey, we need you to come back and run PR for the New York Knicks. I mean, I could do it, um, but, but I would have to hire like a thousand people beneath me. <laughs> so I would never get offered a job and I really couldn't do it because there's just so much about it. I don't know. And it takes so much um, work to do. But when I was doing it, there were like three or four, uh, four of us in a, in an NBA PR office, maybe four, I think when I was got to Charlotte and, uh, it was a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Everybody's doing a lot of work. And there's every time you turn around, there's another basketball game, especially in season. And the hours are, are crazy, but it's awesome. And, uh, when I got there, I didn't know if I was on foot or horseback. And my boss, Scott Lightman is a great man, but he was like, you know, he 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 wasn't crazy about me. I, that's at least that was at least how I felt. Um, but there were other people who liked me enough where uh, I certainly got a lot of reps, and I had a great experience and b j. Evans was one of the guys who liked me again. Scott hired me, um but Scott was like he was it was a situation where I would have to do every morning I would do press clippings, which is like it was called the clips, and I worked my ass off when I got to Charlotte, but I was also like. Um, Like the Tasmanian devil, right? Like I didn't, again, I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd never done this stuff before. I did a little tour with USA basketball for a while. And Scott was, uh, Scott was like, hey, you got to have these clips. And the clips were supposed to be perfect. And, you know, basically you would have to cut every article out of the the newspaper in the morning. And you would have to put it on the copy machine and make it look pretty. And if there was an article in the the USA Today, if there's an article in the Charlotte Observer, if there's an article in the Sports Business Journal... Um, if there was an article in the New York post, you had to, you know, make it look good and put it in this clips packet and you would deliver it to every office on the, um, everybody in the organization and you would have to do it before they got in by like seven thirty. And so like I, I, my work was cut out for me and, uh, I broke probably a thousand printers or a thousand Xerox machines and gave Scott a thousand headaches because there were articles, you know, he'd be like, why wasn't the article, all? of Gerald Wallace from the USA today on the first page. And I'd be like, I I don't know. You know, (laughs) it was just, uh, it was, it was a a good experience, but it was like, I put way too much stress on myself than I should have. And BJ was a guy who mentored me through that whole thing. BJ had been a sports information guy at North Carolina, A&T black college. I mean, when you're, I I do it now because I'm lucky enough to call, call games now. And I can, you end up calling an HBCU game or, you know, you get to those a lot of those HBCUs and, and there's like a lot of young people doing uh, just, just everything. Uh, and uh, it's if you are a sports information director at a small school, whether it's an HBCU you or not, you are going to know how to do absolutely everything when you arrive, uh, whether it's to the NBA, NFL or whatever you want to do. And BJ knew how to do everything. And BJ taught me everything. Um, and I was I didn't I was an idiot. I didn't have a car. And BJ drove me back to Davidson when I lived with my good friends the McGoldrick's and BJ was just, he was, I mean, I frustrated him, but he saw that I wanted to learn and I think he had a relationship with some of the guys at the Miami Heat, I know he did, that kind of wanted to give me an opportunity and uh, BJ was the best. one A funny story I'll tell you guys. Um, so BJ, one of my funny stories is BJ would just take me with him everywhere. So he would take me out with him afterwards. He would, if he would introduce me to all, the sports media, uh, the sports, uh, information guys or PR guys from other teams when they come into town, you know, John Black with the Lakers. I mean, it it was really, really cool. Cindy Edeman from the jazz. Uh, I'm trying to think. So Gary Sussman, he would introduce me to him, Joe favorito with the Knicks. Uh, he knew everybody. Um, and it was really cool. Tim Donovan with the heat who had me down there on my interview. These guys were rock stars in that whole little industry. Um, and it was a pow- these were people with power, you know. The one thing is, and BJ told me this, PR people felt very powerful in a sense where you, the media needed you. This was before guys had their own social media and all that stuff. So the the media needed these guys. They needed us. And they needed access to these players. And there, there was a, some PR guys who would go on power trips, you know. Uh, you need to get to me if you want to talk to mecca Okafor. And, uh, you know, I think I'm having a bad day and, you know, I, I don't like you or whatever. I'm going to make your life, I'm going to make that very difficult for you. It's frustrating because a media guy has a job to do. And also tickets, tickets are power. And PR guys had a lot of tickets. And so I can remember I, I had a lot of tickets that I was able to to disseminate, which we won't get into that. Um, but it, some people think that's kind of a power trip. Anyways, this is a funny story. There's a million funny NBA stories I could tell. And maybe I'll tell them all at a different time, but one of my welcome to the, my welcome to the NBA moment was we had a preseason game in Fayetteville, North Carolina for the Bobcats and the Bobcats are a brand new team. You want to talk about, I mean, there's a lot of shit being thrown up against the wall and and some of it's sticking and some of it isn't. Uh, and the city is kind of like, what are these guys doing here? I should, I'll do a whole nother podcast on the Bobcats, but it was pretty crazy. Um, it was a lot of fun but it was pretty crazy. And I remember it was a startup, you know, so imagine if you've ever worked for a startup, uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Our first, one of our preseason games was was in Fayetteville and Antoine Walker, it was the Hawks and the Bobcats and Antoine Walker. It was in the preseason where guys played more than they do today. Antoine Walker must've had 40 points and 25 rebounds. And, uh, he was just, he was so good and he made it look so easy And we didn't have our regular, we had game night staff who would go into the locker room and they would say, hey, you know, they would go in the locker room with the media and they would get quotes from players and then they would type those quotes out and they would put them, you know, in a tray in the media room. So if a a sports writer needed a quote on deadline, he could turn around and grab a quote out of that tray that was compelling or whatever. Um, But it was also manicured, right, by the sports information guys. Um, or the sports information gals, whoever. And I remember BJ was like, hey, we don't have our game night interns with us on the road here in Fayetteville. Can you run over there and go to ask Antoine Walker about, you know, his his performance? And I walk into the locker room and there's Antoine and he's sitting there buck naked with two ice packs on his knees. And I'm like, and we got to leave. We got to get a bus back to Charlotte. And BJ's like, you need you to hurry up. So I go in there and I'm like, uh, and the well, locker room's open so we can go, you know, personnel's allowed in there. I'm like, uh, Antoine. And he's the guy, I'm talking no clothes. And Antoine Walker was a, uh, gifted man, uh, in this respect. And he's just sitting there. He goes, Hey, he goes, uh, what's up, babe? And I was can I ask you a couple questions. He's like, sure. And at that point I realized that at no, at no point was Antoine going to put any clothes on, which you start to, work uh in this capacity with these guys and you realize that that's going to happen more often than not so you better get used to it luckily being able to lean on my experience with sports I was like okay this is how this is going to be too um so that was a pretty interesting experience but more stuff like that continued to happen I was lucky enough when I was working in Charlotte um Scott left uh and BJ took over uh and then so it was BJ and I kind of running uh the the Bobcats PR situation. Uh, And then I ended up getting a job with the Philadelphia 76ers, which was my team back at home, which was like so awesome. I go back to the Sixers. I'm doing PR for them. I mean, again, you can go listen to the payoff. I said it a million times, but my personal life just goes off the rails. And I am, the Sixers job was unbelievable for me. I'm back at home. Uh, I mean, there's a gazillion stories I could tell but, uh, the bottom line is I, 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 uh, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't go great. It went great for about a year. And then I was just like, really enjoying myself too much. And I was taking advantage of, of the, uh, you know, whatever kind of status I had from this job. And I had a lot of fun. I had too much fun. So I, uh, I ended up, <laughs> should I, did they, uh, Mike Preston was my boss and Mike Preston was a great, great guy. And I could tell Mike was like, what is, what is happening to this dude? because I was just partying a lot, you know, a lot. Uh, Rebecca Goodman, who worked with me, she was so awesome. Um, God, I loved her. Sean McCluskey, he's with the Rockets now. He was on our staff, and Sean was just like, Sean's, Sean's work speaks for itself um, without Sean saying a word. Uh, he's now like a like a big wig with the Rockets, and all Sean did was grind and get along with players and media and do the right thing. Like, you want to know how to advance in life or, or in this business or that business? Like, that's how you do it. Um, and, uh, so it was cool, you know, like I really enjoyed working, working back at home, but I, you know, I wasn't ready, um, from, a, from a mental health perspective, as far as addiction is concerned. So I stopped working for the Sixers. My life falls apart. Uh, I do get one last lifeline. Um, my position was eliminated with at the Sixers, but I was basically fired. And, uh, I, you know, there was an article about it in the daily news, like a bunch of us got fired on the, on the same day. Uh, so I found solace in the fact that I was lumped in with everybody else. But you know, the end of the day was I wasn't pulling my weight because my, my personal life is a mess. So I ended up, um, getting a job in Charlotte, Scott Lauer, who was on this podcast uh, a couple episodes ago, uh, and Steve Martin, who is the television guy for, for the Bobcats and a guy named Seth Bennett, who I actually love. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, they gave me an opportunity to come down to Charlotte and I was able to host, this was a coup for me. Now I did it for basically nothing and that's why it happened but Scott and Steve believed in me and they saw a lot of good in me when I was working in Charlotte. So I did radio broadcast for the Charlotte Bobcats. I was the halftime host uh, and I did sideline reporting Um, and it was awesome. I'm doing halftime radio for an NBA team. And, uh, you know, it's like one of my dream jobs, but again, like, you know, there were flashes of, of real, real, I showed some real signs. I mean, Steve Martin, after my first weekend was like, wow, like you're really good at this. Um, I remember he's like, you're already, you're already this good. And I was like, wow, this is, this is great. And so that's all I needed was a little bit of, um, a little bit of support. And then I decided, okay, I'm, I'm good enough where I can do whatever I want. Now I lost focus. I started to basically host a sports talk show at halftime when you're supposed to be talking about the Bobcats. It was, it didn't go well. Um, And at the end of that season, uh, again, there's more stories about this on the payoff in detail, but at at the end of the season, I ended up, I had like a contract and they went back to the guy that they had before me. Um, And so at that point, I go to rehab and I totally get my my life together. And when I got out of rehab, a guy who I work for at the Sixers, uh, Billy King, was now the general manager of the Brooklyn Nets. And I was really sober, and this is like 2012. I was doing really well, um, from like a, a mental health perspective. And I got a, uh, I got a, like an email, or I saw, I saw a job that the Springfield Armor, who were the NBA Development League, um, they were the NBA Development League affiliate of the Brooklyn Nets, they needed a play-by-play announcer. Now, when I tell you I hadn't done play-by-play, I did play-by-play at the University of Richmond. I left that out. So I called games, basketball games at the University of Richmond with Adam Wolomowski, the great Adam Wolomowski. And uh, I was pretty good, and and uh, and I liked it a lot. And I knew that I was, I was that was something I was good at. And I, I knew I could do it. I had a couple tapes, um, and I was like, I, this is also, again, this isn't about, addiction recovery, but I was so in the middle of addiction recovery that I was like, I had started to get confidence back. I had self-esteem back. I had, um, I had the, 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 the courage to reach out to Billy King and be like, Hey Billy, this is Pete Souza. i work worked for you. And Billy and I actually had a great experience because, uh, he got fired. Every general manager either gets fired or leaves. Um, and so Billy got fired. Um, like and I'd only been there for like six, seven months and we were getting along great. Again, that was when I was doing really well. And I did a lot of stuff with Billy and it went good. <laughs> when Billy got fired by the Sixers, I'd set up his his uh like farewell press conference at the Palms downtown where media came and Billy talked to the media. Um so Billy and I had some good experiences and Billy is he's an easy guy to have great experiences with. Billy King's the kind of guy that you'll spend a lot of time with him and you'll come away thinking that he's your best friend. Um, which is Billy kind of just gives that aura and he's not full of it either. So anyways, I send Billy this message and I certainly know, uh, let him know that my life is going, you know, well, it's on the right track after some hiccups and you know, I got that job. Uh, I was, I was ready for it too. I met with the guys in Springfield. Um, Eli Pearlstein, who is now with the Nets was the PR guy. Um, Him and Alex Sherwin was the president. And, uh, they gave me the job. It was, uh, hosting uh, a weekly show called inside the armor and calling the NBA. Uh, it was the D league at the time, but calling all those games, some of them would get picked up on NBA TV and the other ones were on the radio locally in Springfield. And, uh, they, they put the games and this is before YouTube was like banging, but they streamed the games on YouTube, which was awesome. And I got a lot of good exposure doing that. And, um, man, I loved it. I did it for two years. The second year I lived in a La Quinta hotel in Springfield. I mean, I had no life. This was all I wanted to do. I was driving back and forth from either, I was living in Jersey city, New Jersey, um, to Springfield, or I was living in Philly, um, driving up to Springfield. And, uh, you know, I would live, I literally wanted it so bad. I would stay in a red roof inn um, for like weeks at a time in Springfield. And, uh, I would just, that was my whole, you know, that was my whole life. And, uh, it was pretty cool, and um, I I made enough progress when that summer I uh, kept the ball rolling. I, I pitched the NBA um, that, that myself and another dude, my man Kevin Dana, who was doing this the uh, the, the what is it the um, the cru- Santa Cruz Warriors the uh, I think they still are the affiliate for the um, for Golden State. Uh, Kevin Dana was their play-by-play guy, so I pitched that Kevin Dana and I go to Las Vegas to NBA Summer League to cover all the players that um, are playing in NBA Summer League that end up playing in the G League and the NBA. Well, they're like, okay, you could you can do it, and I was like, what? So they they uh, they were like, you got to get out to Vegas yourself, um, and so we got out to Ve- I got out to Vegas myself. Uh, and we were out there after every game, we would find guys who played in the D league and we would interview them about the D league, which is now the G league. And it was awesome. Uh, again, access, unbelievable. Those games were just like, everybody's there at those games. And the NBA was all, they put me up at the Cosmopolitan in my own like suite. It was like, you know, they had a block of rooms. They're like, all right, you stay here. Um, they were really, really good to me. So they were very, very good to me. And this guy, Sean Smith, uh, who was overseeing the G league, was like, Hey, I want you to stay here. And, uh, so I stayed for like two, two and a half weeks, the whole summer league. And he was like, cause we were supposed to leave after a week. And, uh, he was like, all right, he was the guy that was the point pan, he point man. He, he, got us in the, uh, he put, got me in a room in the cosmopolitan and it was like really crazy. It was awesome. And the whole time, by the way, um, uh, my parents were like, what the hell is this guy doing? You know, but they were very supportive. Um, and, uh, you know, I was able to keep it going. And that went so well at the summer league where I saw guys from the, uh, by the way, my, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the Springfield armor had moved to Grand Rapids. Um, so there was no longer an opportunity for me in Springfield. And I tried like hell to get the play by play job in Grand Rapids, but they, they were like, at first they were like, Oh yeah, no problem. And then they just totally ghosted me, which was a total, like kicking the balls. Um, so, when I was down in summer league, I saw Seth Bennett and he was a guy I work for when I was not in a good way at the Bobcats. And I told him right away, Hey, I'm sober. Um, my life has turned around and, uh, he was so cool. And over the course of the summer, my man, Scott Lauer reached out again. He said, Hey, there may be an opportunity for you here, um, to come. We have this, this, this story is, uh, th- this new pregame show. Um, God, I can't believe I forget the name. Um, it was something with the uh, Buzz City or something. Uh, I'll remember it and come back. But it was, um, it was a pregame show live from the uh, Time Warner Center, the Hornets Arena. And they were going to let me host it. And they had another guy they wanted to host it. And if he was going to do it, um, they were going to let him do it, but he didn't want to do it. Um, so it, it fell to it fell to me, and I ended up doing it. And it was an incredible year. I did every home game. There was a 15 minute pregame show. I can't believe I can't remember the the, uh, the name of it, but I'll have to come up with it. Live at the Hive is what it was called, and we streamed it live every night on CharlotteHornets.com, and it was awesome. Basically, I could produce the show. I could do whatever I wanted. Uh, if I knew a visiting writer. Uh, Let's say Frank Ayasola from the New York Post was in town, which that never happened. Uh, Mark Berman, let's say, uh, the guy guy covering the Knicks. I would ask him, hey, would you mind joining me? Uh, And and, and Mark would join me before a game and I would talk about the Knicks playing the Hornets. It was awesome. The access I had was unbelievable. You know, on MLK Day, Paul Silas would come on um, and he would talk to me about the importance of Martin Luther King, and how when he played for the Boston Celtics with Bill Russell, they were in a cab on the way to a game once, and the guy you know, was very racist to them, and and they got out of the car. I mean, just like amazing stuff. I'm in the middle of all this crazy stuff, and uh, Dave McMenamin will come on when he was covering the Cavs because he was with LeBron. And honestly, one day, this is – and Matt Rachinsky was a guy who oversaw – he was my boss along with um, with Seth. And one day, Matt called me up. And he was like, hey, Adam Silver's in town. You're going to interview him on uh, Live at the Hive. Aaron, who was uh, the social media girl, and she was incredible. um, Aaron had already interviewed uh, Adam Silver. And so they were like, you can do it this time. And uh, I was like, what? And literally, I did like nine minutes with the commissioner of the NBA. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, And let me tell you something. The interview went awesome because I was prepared and I was confident and I was like totally like brewing, brimming with like all kinds of recovery and that whole stuff that happens. Uh, and that was amazing. So that season was amazing. I had to move on because I had to start making some real money. I mean, you're working every two, three days for 15 minutes. I ain't cutting it. While, by the way, while I was doing that, I was driving to um, Winston-Salem where the IMG studios are. And if you don't know about IMG, they basically, they are a conglomerate where they put a lot of college basketball, college sports on the air. It's IMG and Learfield. Uh, you'd listen to a college game in the car. It's going to be Learfield. And uh, at the time it was IMG. And I'm, I'm sure I'm getting some of this wrong, but the bottom line is I worked in Winston-Salem and hosted the St. John's basketball halftime show. Um, John Minko and Brandon Tierney would be at the games and then I would, they would toss it back to me at halftime. And part of the job was you had to produce the halftime show and I could not produce like a run a board. Um, and John Minko had some patience with me, let's just say. Um, and he was incredible. It was a lot of fun though. And so that whole year I just did whatever I could to work. I worked my ass off, um, when the opportunity was there and I did whatever I could. And then I got into doing some morning television on, um, Fox, Charlotte, Scott Lauer, the radio guy, one morning he was supposed to do a TV hit on, you know, um, good day Charlotte. And he was like, I can't do it. So he's like, Susa, you can do it. I mean, Scott is just the best. He believed in me. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting there on live TV talking about the Hornets and I'm like, man, I love this. And I love, I love morning television and I was good at it. Uh, the first time I did it on the weekends, I was great. Uh, and then the second time they were like, wow, you are good enough. We'll have you on the weekdays. And I was not great. I remember being like, I was sitting there and my, my mouth started to get dry. And I was like, oh, boy, what is happening? Um, I'm, oh, oh, man, I'm nervous. <laughs> uh, but so that was one uh, one appearance that didn't go so well. But I continued to do it. And they had me on every weekend. And they had me on a couple more times during the week. <clears throat> and I was dumb enough to think that I liked morning television. And I got done um, with that job. I'm probably putting people to sleep here. But uh, I got do- I got done with the- <laughs> Allison's smiling. So I got, look, this is what Mike told me to do. I'm trying to get us to an hour here. I'll probably take us to two hours. Uh, so I got done that, um, that opportunity with, uh, with Charlotte and I took a job in Monroe, Louisiana, um, as a news anchor. And I will just tell you this. I love being a news anchor now. Uh, I moved to Monroe. I probably should have stuck in sports, um, because I was not ready to be an anchor. I have dyslexia. Uh, and at the point. I had a, a real, I had a pretty big case case of stage fright sitting next to like this anchor, Nicole Cross is her name and she's in Austin now. And she's just like, unbelievable at her job. And Nicole and I have both started into broadcast late in life. Uh, me because I was an alcoholic and Nicole, because she was like a therapist making six figures. And she decided, Hey, I want to switch over and do TV. So Nicole was super polished and established. I was super hardworking. Um, and willing to do whatever it took. But I mean, I literally, for the first couple months, I couldn't re- really read a teleprompter. I was terrified. It was like a face-off with the teleprompter every day. Um, and the teleprompter won, um, early on it won a lot. And, uh, but I stuck to it. I developed the confidence and a charisma as a, as a morning television personality. I learned a lot, did a lot of cool stories. And, um, at the time, I, you know, during this time, by the way, I need to talk about. I was always spotting. I was always in spotting. What they say is, I would travel with the talent um, to actually show. You know, if somebody made a tackle, you have to point to who made the tackle for the play-by-play guy to be able to announce the game in a fluid fashion because he needs to know what's going on on the field because there's so much going on. And now I'm lucky enough to have some a guy do that for me. Um, when I do football, they don't have them for basketball. They just have stats guys in football. They have stats and spotting. Well, my main man, one of my heroes who I can't believe I didn't mention when I was talking about the Bobcats, cause I don't want to take all day with this, but Matt Devlin was the play-by-play guy for the Bobcats. And for whatever reason, that dude took me under his wing. He gave me his suits. Um, he gave me his ties. He gave me his time. Um, and when he got jobs, he was mad as an incredible guy incredible play-by-play guy. He's with the uh, Toronto Raptors now, and he did games, the NFL's on, on Fox, and he did a lot of college football, and he allowed me to to, to spot for him. And I learned a lot about, about the sports television, uh, and I was able to continue to do that. Uh, so when I was, I mentioned Matt, um, I was not like, I mean, there's a million stories, but I was not like altogether well. Um, and I, I would party a lot, and but Matt would take me. If Matt got a game uh, on Fox doing the Raiders and the Cardinals, he took me with him. And you know, one game, God bless him. Tony Saragusa has passed away, but Tony was the color analyst, and Matt was a play-by-play guy. I'm, I'm still not a good driver. I certainly wasn't a good driver then. And for whatever reason, the spotter would drive. I still don't understand that. Um, and uh, it was like basically, like let's let's pick the worst driver and have him drive you know, drive us from the hotel to the game. And so I had to drive us to a hotel in, the, in San Francisco um, to the game in Oakland. And uh, I remember I was driving and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm driving this huge SUV. There's like four guys in it. Saragusa's riding shotgun. Matt Devlin's in the back. This dude, Ed Toner, who works for Saragusa's behind Saragusa. And by this time, Saragusa was like, you know, he's one of those guys. He's my best buddy. It's Sunday. We've been together since Thursday. And he was like, dude, He's like, can you drive? And I was kind of like, all, like just going back and forth. You know, the guys in the back are putting the window down so they don't get sick. And I'm like, yeah, I can drive. He's like, I want you to go back. to Where do you live? I was like, Charlotte. He's like, go back to Charlotte, rent a car, and practice, dude. He's like, come on, Petey. And, uh, <laughs> you know, those were experiences that Matt was able to, to open my eyes to. And, and it was awesome. I can remember I was spotting, and I was not the best spotter um and that was when i was drinking when i got sober I, even at first wasn't good because i was so nervous um again all this stuff i had to like work myself back into uh, matt had incredible patience with me and i loved being with him and i uh, i leaned on him for all these jobs um but anyways he continued to i continued to spot with matt for matt when i was in louisiana so i still had that like i still wanted to quench that thirst for sports and i had a couple opportunities i had an interview with a station in Nashville when I was in Monroe. I didn't get it. Um, I had a couple interviews that I bombed because I would get so nervous when I got on set, my, my throat would get dry and this is for TV news. Um, and then finally I got a job in, in, in Waco. It was like probably one of the best jobs that had come across, um, for me to possibly get. And it worked out and I got to Waco and you know, that's where I'll just move forward, uh, to, the sports situation I got into I got to Waco and Josh Young who's our GM now he took over from Mike Wright Mike Wright and I were together for about maybe a year Mike Wright was a general manager and Mike knew that I love sports Mike did play-by-play for Texas A&M women's basketball and he was also the PA guy um, at, uh, at Texas A&M football games and I was surrounded by, by, by Mike I was around Mike and I, I I think he knew I had the itch, but I just stayed in my lane when I got here to to, uh, to Waco. And when Josh Young took over, I think he could tell that I, like, had had that itch for sports. And he knew that I traveled and did spotting. At this time, I was spotting for Roy Philpott at ESPN. I'm traveling every weekend, going around the country, and these guys are taking good care of me. And I'm learning, like, at the foot of the master. You know, I'm always around Roy and these other um, analysts, and, you know, I'm still doing some basketball spotting. Uh, or basketball stats here and there. And um, I really wanted to, to keep my foot in that in that arena. And uh, COVID hits, and um, the NIL, which oversees all of high school sports in Texas, um, Josh was like, we're going to do these games play-by-play, play, um, high school games, because we can. Because Friday night ga- high school football games, you can now put them on television. We're going to carry them on TV because... You know, you remember COVID, right? People weren't leaving their houses, even in the fall, um, or at least they weren't supposed to in Texas. So even in the fall. um, But people weren't really going to games, or some people weren't. And uh, the NIL allowed these games to be on TV. And uh, we carried them. And Josh was like, you're going to do play-by-play. And I was like, really? We did like 10 games. And it was awesome. Now, some of the games got canceled last minute in the middle of the season, uh, my dad passed away, so I missed the game there. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, my dad always kind of wanted me to do the the, the the news and the play-by-play. That's a whole other therapy session. Um, but uh, – and he, he really helped me. Um, so that's incredible. But uh, Josh gave me this opportunity, and then through that opportunity, I felt like by the end of the season, I was like, man, I feel like I'm pretty good. And then I continued to grow – Um, and I still have all my relationships, right. From, uh, from my, my sports media days. Um, you guys have, I could talk to you about John Tobias till I'm blue in the face. Um, he's been an incredible confidant and just like a truth teller to have in my my life and in my circle. Um, but you know, and if you don't know John, you can go listen to the uh, first podcast we had here, um, on this feed. And, uh, you know, I started to, John Morris at Baylor gave me the opportunity to do ESPN plus and, and some, some baseball here in Texas. And then I did a lot of that. And, uh, then I started to get some basketball, some college basketball. And then I started to get this past year, I I did some college football, um, some big 12. Um, I got another, I got a big 12 basketball game for ESPN. That's coming up, um, next weekend at Kansas state. Um, and uh kansas state nebraska i just keep getting these 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 things um you know come come towards me um stop that mike can you take that one part out thanks i keep getting opportunities and it's i I do everything i can to keep getting them but i uh part of this is where i'll wrap this up because i feel like this is taking too long um but uh I was able to start this podcast through my guys at rogue media, Corey and Mike were like, Hey, we should do, cause I obviously do the Playoff podcast and they wanted to expand on the sports wing or should I say create one. And, uh, I, I love sports history and I love, um, like I talked about, I think the Craig Miller in me, uh, and you know, when I was around Craig and, you went to Villanova Sports Information Office, and they had the media guide for every team in the Big East and every team they played last year. If they went to a holiday tournament and they played Houston and Florida State, they had those media guides. I remember there was a Villanova 1985 from Lexington, Kentucky, Final Four media guide. I would just pore over these things, um, and I would just read them nonstop. And, you know, if I talked to Jeff Perlman about the Bo Jackson book, the last folk hero. And I I read the first Bo Jackson book in 1990. My brother, Kevin's girlfriend, Gwen got it for me for my birthday. And I read it in like, and I don't read much, but like, I just am obsessed with that era in sports and sports history in general. Uh, And so this is a way to share that with you guys. And I think that again, through the stories I've told about when I was in sports information or, or with USA basketball. And when I was in PR in the NBA, I think that lasted like eight years um, when you include USA Basketball. And so you see a lot of stuff and you hear a lot of stuff that people don't really always hear. Um, and there's an experience. You know, there's a guy who has worked for the Philadelphia 76ers for what seems like 100 years. His name's Alan Lumpkin, and he's on the basketball operations side. Why, why I bring up Alan Lumpkin is because nobody has seen more than that guy. Nobody. If, if a player gets into a jam in Philadelphia, the police call Alan Lumpkin. If a player gets traded to the Sixers, the first point of contact they have is Alan Lumpkin. If Alan Lumpkin wanted to ri- write a book, I'd, t- I'd be first in line to read it. And, and what I'm saying is there's so many Alan Lumpkins out there, and if I can get my hands on some of them, I'm too scared to call Lump because he's a badass. But um, th- if I can get some of these guys to tell their stories or stories about stories, that they know about what happened behind the scenes and in sports history. Like, I'm all in. Um, and, uh, and it's a passion I have. So I wanted you guys, or Mike wanted you guys, to have a background on exactly how we got here. And, uh, you know, I'm a sports nut just like you. Um, and I was lucky enough. And I talked about it, my mom and the early things, relationships at Villanova and my brother's playing football in my own career. You know, there's a guy like McShay. Like, I was able to have that relationship through sports. Sports has been very good to me. Uh, and uh, I, I just love it, you know, and I think um, it's something I want to share. So we'll, we'll wrap it up right now. But um, next week, we got a big guest, Amy Trask, um, who is just all everything. One of the first women um, to work in an NFL front office in the capacity she did. She was basically like chief of staff for the Raiders and Al Davis. And um, yeah, she's now an analyst on CBS Sports. And we're going to talk to her about her book and, and, and the Raiders and uh, what she's up to now and just people like that. I want to keep keep seeing if I can, I can share their stories. That's it for now. From me, Mike, anything else? I love you, Pete. I love you too, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. That's all. I think I've had about enough pete uh, for today. Thank you. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. We are Rogue Media Sports.